0: Well, if you've been worshiping with us this summer, we've been going through a series on belonging. We ended that last week as Matt closed us out in the final sermon, and so we are returning to our series in the Gospel of John. So if you will, if you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 18. We're going to pick up where we left off in our series. Jesus has just interceded for not only his disciples, for those who would come after them, And we follow in the story that John is telling us. So hear now the word of the Lord as it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Ask those who have heard me that I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of a high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, uh, in the world of business and athletic competitions, one thing we can say for sure is this, winning is winning and losing is losing. You either come in first or you come in second, and that's just the way it is typically in our world. But my question for you today would be this, is it? According to UK Sport, the British government body that oversees development of elite sports, the idea that winning and winning and losing is losing may actually be a fallacy. UK Sports did a study about elite athletes to find out what makes greatness, uh, especially among excellent and elite athletes, and especially when they encounter significant setbacks. An example of this would be Annie Vernon, a rower for the 2008 British rowing team. Uh, She was one of four on a team uh, and was the youngest at 25 to be a part of a team in 2008 that was actually one of the favored to win a gold medal. Her team indeed made it to the final, but in an extremely close race, actually lost uh, to the Chinese and only got a silver. Vernon reported that she was devastated by the law, so much so that it was the defining feature of her career. And that's interesting she would say it that way, because two years later in 2010, this event so motivated her that she went on to actually win the world championships in a rowing competition. Good athletes and exceptional athletes, and it's totally this it's how they respond to major setbacks how they respond to major setbacks for some setbacks are totally demotivating and take them out of the game but for truly exceptional athletes setbacks and losses translate into more motivation they see near misses as a near win and as a result what they do Ian Leslie says it this way, great athletes turn disappointment and pain into rocket fuel. Or put it this way, losing can actually be translated into winning. Today in John 18, we're going to return to our series in, in uh, John where we look at the Christ who satisfies. And in this particular chapter, we start walking with Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. And we're going to learned in these next few weeks how Jesus turns losing into winning. And this chapter in particular just starts us off with a great uh, bit of that. Up to this point in the book of John, uh, most people in Jesus' time thought Jesus was a winning king on a winning team. Think of Palm Sunday when he arrives in Jerusalem uh, just a week before this this event. When he shows up, crowds are all over the place singing Hosanna as he arrives into town. And Hosanna being the call of the Old Testament, save us. In other words, save us Jesus. Everybody had their hopes pinned on Jesus. But what happens now, starting in our chapter, is Jesus experiences a series of setbacks. Dizzying setbacks that even turn dark. And that brings us to our larger question then. In light of winning and losing, what are these historic sequence of events and setbacks that Jesus went through on his way to the cross? And was the real life drama we're going to see today winning or was it losing according to the world? Of course, we'll always get to the question, what's this got to do with us today? So you can see the outline on the back of your bulletin, even on the screen An outline of seeming losses with Jesus, where Jesus is betrayed, Jesus is prosecuted, Jesus is denied, and yes, we even share in Jesus' suffering. So, of all the series of setbacks, let's dive in and look at the very first one where Jesus is betrayed, starting in verse 1 of our text. Look at what that says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas. Who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now Jesus just finished teaching and praying for his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they make their way in a little trek across the valley, a few miles uh, to the Mount of Olives, there at the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, he he tells them along the way, or really in the in the upper room, that he's leaving. He's actually going away, and this kind of blows their minds, and he proceeds to teach them on how to follow him, even in his absence, talking about the Holy Spirit and abiding and all these magnificent truths in 13 through 17. And yet, on the way to the Kidron Valley, uh, he, he, he ends up in a garden. Now, I want to stop right here and make an important point about this amazing set of verses, and it would be this. A common perception about the Gospels is that when we look at them, they are meant to be inspiring stories, to lead us to change our behavior, that they provide a good example, sort of like uh, the, the Greek myths that came back in uh, Greek times. But We have to say, looking at this text, this is not a myth, this is not an allegory, or merely an inspiring story as his history. And you know why I know that? Because myths don't aren't chock full of details of places and locations. Like the Kidron Valley or, or a garden. Or the Garden of Gethsemane in particular. They're not chock full of, of names like Malchus or Peter or even Judas of Iscariot. I say this to remind us that what we're dealing with here is history. It actually happened in time and space. And it's way more than just inspirational stuff. It affects how history itself works. So we have to ask them, what happened in the garden with Jesus? Well, John tells us one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, shows up with a band of soldiers uh, in tow who want to arrest Jesus. These soldiers were from a temple guard, and they were kind of the police department. Of, uh, of the temple at that time, and they were likely a pl- there was likely a platoon of them, maybe around a hundred more, if you will. But needless to say, the whole point of it is that it is a serious show of force, uh, just like you'd see when the police come in great numbers to control a riot or, or do some extreme confrontation with someone breaking the law. There are three responses to this, that of Jesus himself. Look in verse 4 of this text with me, how Jesus responds when they all show up. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, what's striking about this response for this is instead of running, Which the soldiers are used to dealing with when they met with people in that time or were after people on the hunt, like they were for Jesus. Jesus doesn't run, he steps forward, he leans in to the moment, he shows authority. And not only that, he takes charge of the situation. This is the courageous response. Now, the second response in our text is that of Peter in verses 10 through 11, and we read earlier that he takes a sword and in a Vincent van Gogh moment takes a swipe at someone and cuts off their ear, if you will. Now, Jesus rebukes Peter for this and tells him to put the sword away because those who live by the sword die by the sword. But another gospel goes on to say that Jesus actually heals the guy's heel a, a ear and the guy's name is Malchus in this case. Again, Jesus takes charge of the situation and says, "Don't," Peter responded with this violent power response. Now, the third and darkest response to this whole moment evolving is that of Judas. Jesus, Judas rather betrays Jesus. And you got to know the Greek here tends to actually say that uh, Judas was betraying Jesus at that very moment. He does not betray Jesus as a distant political rival. He does not betray Jesus as a social media troll throwing Jesus under the bus. He betrays Jesus as a friend. One of his 12 original disciples serving with him, day in, day out, eating meals, talking with him, sleeping around a campfire together. They were together at the feeding of the 5,000. They were together at the healing of blind people. Judas was right there when Jesus resurrected people from the dead like Lazarus. And yet, his response in this text, although not in this text but in the other Gospels, was to come into the garden giving Jesus that infamous Judas kiss. We have to ask, why would Judas do that? Why would anybody do this to a friend and a Lord whom he'd followed for so long? Well, John 12 and other texts throughout the Gospels give us clues into what was going on with Judas. You see, Judas loved money and power. He loved money and power, and in his effort to get money and power, he was even willing to throw Jesus on the bus because Jesus wasn't giving him what he wanted. Jesus wasn't giving him what he wanted, and as a result, he was willing to go where he could get what he wanted, money and power from, in this case, the Jewish authorities as he worked out his betrayal plan. This is the cowardly and the manipulative response in our text. What happens here that I find just uh, fascinating is how Jesus stands out. He actually steps forward with courage. And when they ask, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. There is so much authority behind a statement that in verse 6, did you notice? It's like the, the soldiers are walking forward to find him, and then they step back and all fall on each other when Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, and you got to think, what's that about? What's the big deal with that? Well, here's what you got to understand. Jesus here is stepping forward as a king, a courageous king, taking charge of the situation. He is the sovereign Lord of all. And as a result, he basically puts himself between the soldiers and his disciples. In fact, he goes on to say, hey, th- these guys over here, don't worry about them. You're looking for me. Just take me. It's like he's going out of his way to protect his disciples and to uh, really give himself up. What you have to understand about this is with Jesus stepping forward and stepping in, you've got to understand Jesus is not a victim. He is not a victim in this. He's very intentional about engaging this whole sequence of events. In fact, verse 4 in our text says, He knew this was coming. He knew the plan as a son of God and knew this was coming. Now, Jesus is stepping into suffering, and that brings up a larger question for some of us here. What do we do with suffering in our world? Certainly a classic critique of Christianity is why would an all-powerful, good, and loving God allow suffering? This is one of the top questions in our time. And, of course, if God allows all the suffering, he either can't be real, or if he's even real, he's not engaged, because, gosh, how could a God who cares not be engaged? But the gospel here is this. This text is like teeming in how God is in control of the moment even in the hardship and suffering. Not only that, he leans in. He engages everyone personally here in Christ. Not only does he lean in and is he in control, but he enters into suffering himself. This is what's missed about the critique of Christianity in our time around suffering is what God in history actually steps into the pain actually goes into the pain. Christ is so big. He's so magnificent in this moment, guys, that he has a vision for redemption. Redemption of what's going to be terrible loss. Let me put it this way. Jesus knows how to take a loss and turn it into a win. What's that got to do with us? You and I experience losses in relationships. And many of us here, if you've been lived any kind of life, you've experienced betrayal. <laughs> if Jesus is betrayed, you can bet, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, that at some point you too may experience betrayal. Some forms of betrayal come at work with political maneuvering because you're taking the high road, the ethical route. Some come at school when uh, you uh, have a friend and you uh, give a confidence to them and then they go and share that confidence with others and throw you under the bus so they look good and you don't look as good. (laughs) In our day, we even have betrayals coming out on social media where sometimes you can be critiqued for something that is completely undeserved. Worse forms of betrayal that have come in some people's lives, probably in this room, include affairs, sexual abuse, other forms of abuse that show up in our families. A more recent form of betrayal that has become very public in our time is when well-known Christians decide via Twitter and other means to tell the world that they're no longer Christians. You think of Rob Bell, Joshua Harris, Marty Sampson, I'm calling them out because it's very public. They recently have said they're no longer discouraging. That's why we need to pray for them, not against them. But especially pray for them when the setup goes like this. And this is happening more in our time. I've come to a better place of understanding of God, meaning we don't. If you're a follower of Christ and experience betrayal in any way, the gospel is this. Jesus is standing between you and the betrayer. He's in charge of the situation in ways you may not understand or see. He's stepping between you and the betrayer to protect you because Jesus is our refuge and strength. He's our very present help in trouble. But I do have to ask another question. What about when we betray we at SCPC believe that we both are sinned against and we sinned against others. They're both true. And if you think you aren't capable of betraying other people, you're a very dangerous person. If you have, Christ can forgive you. He's still in charge. In our text, he is on a more directed mission than you and I could ever imagine. He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross to die for the darkest of sins. Look at verse 11 in our text. It says this, Jesus says to Peter, after he pulls out that that sword, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup he's talking about here is the cup of wrath, of suffering, that God would give to him on the cross as he dies for our sins, if we humble ourselves before Jesus and we come before him and admit our darkness, even a betrayal, and tell him and call on his name for salvation, which, by the way, Judas never did, we can have forgiveness because Jesus is sovereign. He's not just sovereign over the moment. He's sovereign over your sin. The worst things you've done in relationships with people, Jesus is even bigger than that with the cross. He can cover you. There was a story this week about a flight delay in Manchester, England. Apparently, there was a backlog of flights, and it was so bad for EasyJet Airlines that uh, one of the flights didn't have a, 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 a pilot to fly the plane. The people were waiting and waiting in the airport. You've probably done that before. And as they were waiting and waiting in the airport, uh, they wondered, were we ever going to get in this thing? And there was talk of canceling the flight until one passenger stepped forward and he said, I'll fly the plane. Michael Bradley was an EasyJet airline pilot there with his family trying to go on vacation. He so wanted to go on vacation with his family, he said, you know what, I'm willing to fly the plane to get there if you need me to. (laughs) So what do you know? Michael Bradley gets permission to get on the plane, do the flight. Everybody made it to their destination, and the Bradleys got their vacation because he stepped in. Folks, that's what Jesus is doing in dark moments of betrayal. When relationships get really hard, he steps in to redeem, to work his redeeming purpose, even though it feels unbelievably painful at the moment. He is at work in ways we don't always understand. So, Jesus and the disciples experience a loss when Judas betrays them. But Jesus steps up into the pilot seat, takes charge of the situation with a redeeming purpose. But as if betrayal isn't enough, Jesus goes through another setback in verse 12. Look at this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. After the confrontation with Judas and the soldiers, the soldiers arrest Jesus and they take him to the Jewish authorities, particularly to the retired Annas, a high priest, and to his son-in-law, who was the high priest in office at the time, Caiaphas. Now, we've seen these guys before back in uh, John 11 when they were scheming to get rid of Jesus. They were already back in that time thinking about how they could kill Jesus, including Caiaphas himself, who used that kind of prophetic language. Clearly, hostility has been building throughout the book of John. And here it is. They've got him. They've got him now. They've got Jesus. And so what they do is they put Jesus through a three-step or three-stage trial process. We'll talk about the third stage with Pilate next week. But the first stage is they take him to Annas, the retired high priest. And in verse 19 through 20, Annas starts to question Jesus. Look at that. It says, the high priest often qu- then questioned uh, uh, about Jesus excuse me, a question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, "I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Now, here's something you've got to know about Jesus. Jesus is the smartest man to ever live, all right? And he's also... And as a result, he knows the law. What do you know? He wrote the law for the Jews and how they run court. And he's basically saying, Hey, guys, you know that I'm not supposed to incriminate myself here and tell you the story, which is what Annas is trying to do, kind of get him to incriminate himself. Where are your witnesses? I've been out there teaching all along. Just bring the witnesses in to say what I did that was against the law. This is an amazing case of how Jesus is on the situation fully. In fact, Jesus is so on it that it makes Annas look bad. And so what happens next? You see in our verses, somebody takes a wind-up and just hits Jesus. As a result, one of the officers does that. And they do that to crush Jesus, to set him down. The amazing thing about this is that despite the fact this trial is off to already a very corrupt start, Jesus is the judge. He knows what justice looks like even when it isn't happening. And he is just and holy even when everybody else isn't. Next, Jesus is sent to Caiaphas. You can see the trial of Caiaphas if you go back and read Matthew 26. Caiaphas oversaw the supreme court of the land, which was called the Sanhedrin. It was kind of the supreme court and the house of representatives all in one for the Jewish nation then. And Caiaphas was trying to get the Sanhedrin to actually uh, um, sentence Jesus to death. And once you got him out of the way, all the Jesus problems would be over with. So here's what Caiaphas does. He brings a false witness against Jesus who effectively charges Jesus with being a terrorist. The false witness misquotes Jesus in John 2 by saying, Jesus said, I will tear this temple down and you will and build it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, tear this temple down in three days and I will raise it up. Caiaphas then not only tries to trick Jesus there, but he, are you the son of God? Jesus says, so you say, uh, for the son of man, he talks about himself as the son of man coming back one day. Well, that was enough for Caiaphas. That was enough. For Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin To give Jesus the charge of blasphemy. And so, what do they do? They charge him with blasphemy and sentence him to death. This, of course, is a farce of injustice and power moves. That never happens in in human courts, does it? But here's the thing in light of all this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Verse 4 says he knew all that was going to happen to him. He's so sovereign. He saw that it was coming. He even predicted it with his disciples three times in the book of Mark when he said the chief priests and the elders were going to persecute him and put him to death. Moreover, it is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that you heard earlier in the reading of Scripture where it talks about, uh, there was a man, a suffering king, who would be despised and rejected by men. Jesus is living out this picture of the greatest king and Lord ever to come being a suffering Lord. Now, this is contrary to what we're used to in our leaders. And that's two, and it gives us two truths to think about. The first uh, T or truth is this. That if you follow Jesus, you will inevitably have people make false accusations against you. You will suffer in Jesus' name because you're connected in him. And sometimes people have simple understandings. This week, I was talking to a non-Christian friend. We were reading through the book of John, chapter 6. And I said, what would you think? And he said, Jesus tells us we should eat, eat flesh and drink blood. Jesus was a vampire? And I was like, no, Jesus is not a vampire. They didn't have vampires back then. That's a kind of a a middle age thing, if you will. Nonetheless, he was like, okay, I'm good with that. It's symbolic, metaphorical. But sometimes people will intentionally misunderstand us and desire to diminish us when you follow Jesus. Remember, in all of these cases, Christ is your advocate. Christ is your first judge. When I feel misunderstood... Sometimes I have to ask, well, am I being hard to understand? (laughs) And then I ask, if I'm not being hard to understand, what's going on here? What's actually true about what's being said? I mean, I've shared this before, but I I really struggled for years with criticism. (laughs) I hated criticism because of my background, where I come from. And yet, I began to learn to just take criticism as what's kind of constructive and healthy here and what's kind of can be thrown away to the side. And most of all, what does Jesus think about this? And that's the real art. When people say things about you, you have to go to Jesus first and say, what's true? That's a forgotten thing in our time. We have to get back to the question of what is true according to God's word. Second, Every experience of hardship for Christ is a way for us to learn the theology of the cross over the theology of glory. What am I talking about? Well, the theology of glory is that God wants us to have prosperity and power in the way of the world. Take the prosperity gospel, which says God rewards more faith with more health and more wealth. It's, another way to say it would be our faith unlocks our best life now. By the way, that also is what the Pharisees effectively taught. If you believe, you can uh, get more blessings from God if you do good works. That's what legalism says. The theology of the cross is different, it's the true gospel. And the theology cross says that God accomplishes his purposes in the exact opposite way that we intuitively think as people. To go up, you must go down. To live, you must die. Jesus himself takes this road in our text. And it makes sense when he says you've got to die to live, you've got to give up to gain. He's living it out himself. Real faith means that you and I have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. So, Jesus has been betrayed by an ambitious disciple. He's been illegally prosecuted by corrupt authorities, but now we come to the third and most devastating loss for Jesus. Jesus is denied by a close friend three times. You all are fairly familiar with this story uh, Jesus, in our te- I mean, Peter, in our text, three times, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, is asked multiple times, do you know Jesus? And he says, no, no, no. One text uh, and one gospel says that he even says no with a curse word. That's how vehement he was about it. you got to ask what was going on with Peter. Well, Peter was living with a theology of glory. But Jesus providentially wasn't going to let him get away with it. See, Peter thought that Jesus would become this big political king and that he could ride his coattails into glory and riches and power, that he would finally win in life. When in fact Jesus was leading him to lose his life in order to gain it. You see, suffering and setback is actually a call to lose our life so that we can gain something new in Jesus. In suffering with Jesus, losing is winning. What's that got to do with us? Well, as we talk about Peter, I I can rest, I'm confident that some of us here feel so beat down by our sin and our failures Even our denials, like Peter, that we think Christ would never forgive us. But here's what I would tell you. Even though your love is fickle for Jesus, his love for you doesn't change. He went to the cross and even died for your fickleness and your denials. Forgiveness, more mercy, more grace. We have to taste what faithfulness is like in order for us to actually learn faithfulness. Stop trying to gain your life in a theology of glory. Come to Jesus and taste what faithfulness is like so that you can learn the same at the feet of the Master. That brings us to a second application. It's really our final point today. For all this, we are called to a life of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If you read Paul's letters throughout, and even Peter, you'll find that there are places where they talk about how we are share in share the sufferings of Christ. Now, let me clarify what that means. We don't pursue suffering to atone for our sins. We don't even invite suffering into our lives in some kind of martyr complex. We recognize that if you just live for Jesus in the day in and day out of, of life, you will experience resistance. Your career might take a hit. I don't want it to, but it might if you follow Jesus. People may misunderstand you at school or in the neighborhood because of the way you follow Jesus. Your relationships may be strained in your family. Some may accuse you of things that aren't true. But don't you understand exactly what happened to Jesus? And you are following him and encountering his life. And the wonder of that is that you actually get to know Jesus better. That's the redeeming part of suffering. None of us here love it. I don't love it. But in suffering and hardship, you actually get to know Jesus more meaningfully, more deeply, broadly in all of his glory. He becomes a Christ who's this bi- who starts this big for you to a bigger Christ. And as you get older, even bigger And you have nothing left to do but give him glory, even in the pain. Don't worry. I'm not suggesting that we just grind it out and endure, which most of us do, especially American men type. We like to do that, like, yes, suffering. All right, I'll grind it out. Push through. There's more to it in Jesus than that. You do need to endure and persevere. Yes, indeed. But 2 Corinthians 1 tells us a wonderful thing. Inasmuch as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also share in his comfort, the Holy Spirit. You can empower, experience the power and grace of God in the Holy Spirit when you follow Jesus in those moments. Because he's with you. He's with you. And because he's with you, he wants you to know him more. He wants you to encounter him more. He wants you to taste what it means to not just die, but to be resurrected. All this tells us what kind of king Jesus is. He's a sovereign king who takes charge with our suffering. He's not distant, he's close, he's present, he jumps in with us. This summer, Fred Pepperman of Tennessee. Uh, met his three girls and their families down in Panama City Beach. And they were out uh, in the water one day together when one of his daughters, his youngest, his 16-year-old, got caught up in a riptide. And it started taking her out in the water, and she was struggling and having a really hard time. Uh, Her two sisters jumped out, jumped in the water and tried to go after her. And guess what? They were taken out by the riptide, too. Fred Pepperman, as well as another family member, saw all this happening. So he got on his board, whatever kind of board he had, swam out to the, his daughters. And when he got out to them, he gave them the board and said, I got you. Make your way back on your own. They all got on the board and made their way back. Everybody came back in. But when they all got back in, Fred Pepperman wasn't there. He didn't make it. He got caught up in the riptide too. He gave his life. He was willing to suffer knowing the dangers involved so that his daughters could have life and a future with their families. Following Jesus is like, but you got to understand something. When you die, you actually live. When you lose, you win. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you were the one who led the way for us and that your losing of your life for us and for our sin was the way in which we could have eternal life. Now we pray, Lord, that as we enter this time of the supper, we would taste and think on your suffering moments for us for how you gave up all for us. In Christ's name, amen.